Good morning. I uh, <clears throat> want to take a moment just to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. Uh, for those of you who might be visiting us with, with us for the first time, my name is Dave. And Jay's given me the oppor- Jay, our lead pastor, has given me the opportunity this morning uh, to present this morning's message. Right now, we are in the middle of a 13-week series called Upside Down Axioms, where we are looking at some of Jesus' most confusing and controversial sayings. Now, why the title Upside Down Axioms? It's because an axiom is a... It is a self-evident or universally understood truth or principle. But when you look at the teachings of Jesus, a lot of the things that he said were anything but self-evident or universally understood. Jesus often took the conventional wisdom of his day and turned it on its head. In fact, many of the things that he said, some of his most prominent instructions are just as misunderstood today as they were when he first taught them. So why would we want to focus on this particular aspect of Jesus' ministry? Well, it's because if we're honest, Jesus sometimes said things that make us uncomfortable. They were things that either challenge us in ways that we may not want to be challenged, as we'll see in today's message. They may have been things that initially seem cold or harsh, as uh, Jay pointed out last week, or they may have even been things that, at least in today's culture, might have gotten him branded as a narrow-minded bigot. For example, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, our tendency is is to either try to rationalize what Jesus said, well, he said this, but he actually meant that, or we try to sweep it under the rug and ignore it altogether. But if we want to follow the real Jesus, and here at Cultivate we do, then we need to be able to confront head-on some of Jesus' most difficult sayings. We want to follow the real Jesus, not some watered-down, saccharine version of him. So we need to confront head-on some of his most difficult sayings, not just the ones that are easy to understand or accept. Now, it would seem that Jesus was rather selective about who he would allow to become one of his disciples. We even saw that last week. The requirements were pretty strict. Now, at this point, some of you might object and say, well, wait a minute. What about Judas? Didn't Jesus let him become a disciple? And the answer to that is yes. In fact, Jesus not only allowed Judas to become a disciple, he even selected Judas to become one of his apostles. But even Judas, even though he turned traitor, had a purpose in Jesus' ministry and mission. That's another sermon for another day. Now, last week we saw that Jesus turned away three men who seemed like perfect candidates to be his disciples. And today we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31, and that's on page 707 in the uh, chair Bibles if you don't have a Bible with you. So get ready for that. Jesus told his had told his disciples, Jesus had just told his disciples 
Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Next, Jesus was approached by a young man who was asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus actually invited this man to become a disciple and to follow him. But there was one little caveat. The man had to sell everything that he had, give it to the poor, and then follow Jesus. And Mark tells us that at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, what Jesus said next stunned his disciples, and in fact, it still puzzles people today. So, take your Bibles out and turn to Mark chapter 10, or if you don't have a Bible, take one of the chair Bibles in front of you and turn to page 707. We're going to read this text and see if we can solve this puzzle together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, says, As Jesus started on his way... A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, Mark tells us here that as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. And notice what the man did. The first thing he did, he fell on his knees before Jesus, and then he addressed him as good teacher. He asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus, as he often did, responded with a question. 
Don't you find that annoying sometimes? You ask someone a question and they respond with a question. Jesus was notorious for that. Jesus responded with a question. He said, why do you call me good? And then he said, no one is good except God alone. And then Jesus listed off some of the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. This man at least claims to have kept the commandments since he was a boy. Now, in Jewish tradition, before a boy was bar mitzvahed, he was not considered responsible for for what he does. Now, this man claims that he was keeping the law even before it was required of him. So he apparently believes that in so doing, he's done enough to inherit eternal life. Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, did you get that? When Jesus looked at him, this was not just a casual glance. This was a penetrating look. Jesus looked beneath the facade of this man's religious devotion and saw his deepest need. Then Jesus pulled a Columbo on him. There's just one more thing. You remember Columbo? There was always one more thing with him. I mean, he, he would one more thing people to death, you know. Something tells me that when Jesus said to this man, just one more thing, he was probably giddy with excitement. He's probably thinking, yes, Jesus, what is it? There's just one more thing that I need to do, and then I can have eternal life. What is it, Jesus? What is this one thing that I need to do? And that's when Jesus drops the bomb on him. He says, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Jesus told him that if he would do these two things, he would have treasure in heaven. And Jesus then invited this man to follow him to become a disciple. Now, here's a question. We sometimes dialogue here. Why did Jesus tell this man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor? Anyone want to? Yes, James. I I know. I'm sticking my neck out and calling on you, but go ahead. (laughs) Because he loved him. Yes. I thought I saw another hand over. Yes, Kurt. Okay, excellent. Jesus had other disciples who were wealthy, did he not? I mean, what about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus offered to give only half of what he had to the poor, and if he had cheated anyone, he said he would pay it back fourfold. Jesus didn't ask him to do it. Zacchaeus simply volunteered to do it. So why did he ask this man for everything? Well, we need to backtrack just a, just a little bit back to one of the previous verses. In verse 19, Jesus listed off some of the commandments. Now, it is generally understood that there were two tables of the law. The first table dealt with our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make, you shall not have a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Now Jesus summarized this table of law with the command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second table of the law dealt with our, our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. Jesus summarized this table with the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when Jesus listed off the commands, the commandments to this man, from which table of the law did he quote? Which one? Was it the first one or the second one? The second one. Did Jesus forget about the first table? No, not at all. Let's backtrack a little bit further. At the very beginning of this conversation, how did this man address Jesus? Good teacher. And what did Jesus say? Why do you call me good? Did Jesus say that he was not good? No, but he did say there is only one who is good, and that's God alone. Now, you don't need a degree in mathematics to follow the logic here. Now, Pete and Jen, you two have degrees in math, so you can either back me up on this or correct me if I'm wrong. But the logic is pretty simple. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Is that correct? Okay. So let's follow the logic here. If Jesus is good and only God is good, then what does that say about Jesus? That he is God. And what is the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And Mark says that at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, this man's problem was not with the second table of the law. He passed that one with flying colors. His problem was with the first table of the law, and he bombed that one royally because he had great wealth, and he loved his wealth more than he loved God. He loved his wealth more than he loved Jesus. Now, what Jesus said next stunned his disciples, and it still puzzles people today. In the very next verse, Jesus says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Now, why were they amazed? You've had your turn, James. Let's give somebody else a chance. <laughs> yes, Amy. I'm, okay. Um, anyone want to add to that? Jay. True. Wealth equals blessing. I saw another hand over here. Okay. <laughs> yes, in ancient, in ancient Jewish culture, wealth and righteousness were believed to go hand in hand. If you were rich, you were considered to be righteous. Your wealth was 
considered to be proof of your righteousness because it was a sign of God's favor. Now, conversely, if you were poor and it was believed that God didn't really care anything about you because you were a sinner. The prosperity gospel is nothing new. It was just as popular in first century Judea as it is in 21st century America. Not much has changed in over 2,000 years. But Jesus took that conventional wisdom and he turned it on its head. Now, if the disciples were amazed at what Jesus had just said, what he said next totally blew them away. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you can imagine trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a sewing needle, (laughs) you know that it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, if you try it, that camel's not going to be too happy, hump day or not. (laughs) It simply cannot be done. Now, if any of you see that as a challenge and you want to try it, go for it. All I can say is don't get mad at the camel if he spits on you. And don't ask me for a towel to wipe yourself off either, because the way I see it, if you're that stupid, you deserve to be spat on by a camel. Now, there have been attempts down through the years to take this upside-down axiom of Jesus and turn it right-side up again. One of those attempts says that there was an alternate gate, either within the main gate of Jerusalem or in the wall adjacent to the main gate. It was a much lower and narrower gate than the main gate and was known as the Eye of the Needle. And a traveler arriving at the city by night could still gain access to the city by dismounting from his camel, unloading the camel, forcing the camel to its knees, and then getting it to crawl through this gate known as the eye of the needle. And the theory is that it was this gate to which Jesus was referring. And the whole point of it is that while, yes, it is difficult for a rich person to be saved, it's not impossible. It can be done. Now, there are two major problems with this explanation. The first problem is that, to date, archaeologists have yet to uncover any such gate in the ruins of old Jerusalem. So it is highly probable that there was never any such gate known as the Eye of the Needle. The second problem with this interpretation is that it completely misses the point of what Jesus was saying. Jesus clearly was using hyperbole to make a point. Now, yes, he did say that it was difficult for a rich person to be saved. But look at the passage carefully. Did Jesus say that it was any easier for a poor person to be saved? No, he did not. Now, the disciples certainly must have picked up on this point because if it is impossible for a rich person who's considered to be righteous to be saved, then what hope is there for some poor, rotten sinner? Hence the question, 
Who then can be saved? To which Jesus replied, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. You see, Jesus was not making a point about the relative difficulty of a rich person being saved. His point was to the absolute impossibility of anyone being saved apart from the grace of God. With man, it is impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle, but not with God. With man, salvation is not merely difficult, it is impossible. Salvation is possible only with God. Peter, however, was not yet ready to concede Jesus' point. Leave it to Peter. He spoke, he speaks up and he says, we've left everything to follow you. Now what Peter is saying here in effect is, whoa, wait a minute, time out, Jesus. Wait a minute. What you've just asked that rich man to do, we've done it. We left our homes and families and lands and wealth. So why are you saying it's impossible? I mean, haven't we earned eternal life? Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, let me use an illustration here. Suppose I needed to borrow a dollar. That's all, just one dollar. And I wanted to borrow it today. And I promised to pay you back a hundred dollars next Sunday. Now, how many of you would love me enough to make that sacrifice for me? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> now, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that your willingness to loan me that dollar has anything to do with the hundred dollars you're going to get back next week, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's pretty much, that's pretty much the gist of Jesus' response to Peter. And this, and his and Peter's sacrifices to live the Christian life. He's basically saying, Peter, what have you really given up? Everything, everything you think you've given up for me, you're going to get back a hundred times over in this life, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. There is nothing. We give up for Jesus that isn't returned to us infinitely many times over. Now, in the verses that follow this narrative, Jesus speaks once again of his own death and resurrection. Because it is through the death and resurrection of Christ that God does what we cannot do. It's through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Not anything that we do that restores our relationship to the Father through Christ. 
And so the big idea here is that with man, salvation is impossible. Salvation is possible only with God. So there are three things that I want you to take away from this by way of application. First is that no one is saved by selling everything and giving it to the poor. Jesus didn't ask this man to sell everything and give to the poor because it would earn him eternal life. He did so because he needed to expose this man's great sin that was keeping him out of the kingdom. And that was the sin of idolatry. Because this man loved his wealth more than he loved God, and he wasn't willing to let go of it. There's a great principle that needs to be learned here. We cannot hold on to our sins and at the same time reach out to Jesus. There has to be sincere repentance before we can turn to God and be saved by his grace. Second point, we are saved by trusting in Christ who made us rich. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. One of the most frustrating things for me in sharing the gospel with unbelievers is telling them over and over and over again that salvation is a free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times they'll nod in agreement, but then they'll, the next thing out of their mouth will be, yeah, we just have to do our part. And my heart sinks every time I hear that, and sometimes I just want to grab them and shake them and say, no, you're not getting it. There's nothing we need to do except trust him because Jesus has already done it. Now, I don't do that, but I, I want to sometimes. Because people often treat salvation like it's a loan. Jesus made the down payment, but now we have to keep up the installments. Or they treat it like it's a ticket into an, into an amusement park. Jesus paid our ticket into the gate, but we've got to work our way up to the front gate before he can pay our way in. But it's neither of those things. We don't have to make the down payment. We don't have to keep up the installments. We don't have to work our way up to the front gate, and we don't have to pay our way in because Jesus has already paid it all. And the third point is that God rewards faithfulness But our motive should be love for Christ and others and not a desire for gain. Now, what if this young man had done what Jesus had asked him to do by selling everything he had and giving it to the poor? What would have been his motivation? Wouldn't it have been selfishness? Wouldn't it have been his desire to obtain eternal life? Is that a good thing? Well, apparently Paul, the Apostle Paul, didn't think so. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, he wrote, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, 
I gain nothing. As the industrialist R.G. Letourneau used to say, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. One of the most ridiculous pieces of film footage from the early era, from the early years of cinema, shows a man standing on a cliff with wooden wings and a tail strapped on, and he starts flapping his wings and he jumps off the cliff because he wants to fly. Now, predictably, in the very next scene, you see the wooden wings and the tail, you know, dash to pieces on the rocks below. Maybe that picture is you. Either you haven't trusted in Christ or you've been living the Christian life for a long time, but you still struggle. Perhaps you've traded Christ for a set of wooden wings and and a tail and you think you can't change. And you can't. But Christ can change you. And he can keep on changing you by his grace. What has been, what has begun by grace must be completed by grace. There is a better way to fly. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. From death unto life everlasting. He leads and we follow him there. O'er us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. 
Then go to a world that is dying, His glorious salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Lord Jesus, we do want to turn our eyes upon you because you first turned your eyes upon us. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to embrace that truth. Salvation, your salvation is by grace. It is all grace and nothing but grace. It is through what you've already done on the cross. But dying for our sins and rising again from the dead, victorious over sin and death, in order to give us new life. Lord, we just want to receive you again this morning. We want to receive you over and over and over. We want to look full into your wonderful face. Just pray, Lord, that you would help us to see with this young man, this rich young man, you invited to follow you. Help us to see what he didn't see. That when we turn our eyes upon you, the things of this earth do grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And Lord, we just uh, want to give you praise for what you've done. We know that it is not, we know that it is not us, Lord. It's you, all you. All the glory and all the honor goes to you. And we want to give that to you this morning. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.